Amy Carson, and this is The Balance, Understanding Nonprofit Finance. In today's episode, Penny Feiner and Doug Wingo join me to talk about building sustainable revenue streams. Welcome to The Balance. Today, I'd like to introduce our first guest, Penny Feiner, Executive Director of Kula for Karma. Welcome, Penny. Hey, Amy. Thank you for inviting me to join you. Penny, can you tell us a little bit about Kula for Karma, what you guys do, who you serve, your mission, et cetera? Absolutely. We are about 15 years young now. And when we first began offering programming in the greater metro area, we were focused on any population that couldn't afford or wouldn't have access to what we call therapeutic yoga, breathwork and meditation. So wherever there was a need, we were there to meet that need. So when we started focusing on hospital-based programs, We were offering therapeutic yoga, breathwork, and meditation for cancer patients, cardiac patients, MS patients, Parkinson's disease patients. And the majority of our programs at that time were focused in hospital spaces or off-site hospital-related spaces, doctor's offices, things of that sort. You know, in those days, that was pushing a rock up the mountain to get hospitals and doctors to write prescriptions for their patients to participate in these sort of avant-garde, non-traditional forms of therapeutic help. We persevered and we put one foot in front of the other. And we were, before the pandemic, um, at the John Thurow Cancer Center offering programs five days a week and two evenings a week. Um, That's a large cancer center affiliated with uh, Hackensack Meridian. And we were in actually all of the hospitals in Bergen County. Then the pandemic hit and every one of our hospital-based programs was placed on pause and we had to pivot and rethink how are we going to survive not knowing how long the pandemic would last. And frankly, we all thought it would be, you know, couple of weeks, three, four weeks, (laughs) not um, a year and a half. So we learned a lot about Zoom as quickly as possible. (laughs) We also had a virtual gala, which we had never done before. That and streamlining, you know, all of our expenses and cutting back on staff and applying for PPP loans. And with your help and guidance, Amy, keeping a finger on the pulse of where we were and how, how we were doing with what kind of funding we had left and what our run rate would be and how we needed to, well, well, how fast we needed to pedal in order to stay afloat. And we did it. Penny, just so our listeners understand, you're a small nonprofit, correct? Your annual operating budget is, is well under a million dollars still. Correct. And briefly, if you wouldn't mind, please help us understand your funding streams. Just please give us high-level percentages. What is earned income versus gala income, individual contributions, board contributions, et cetera? I would say in the past, again, pre-pandemic, the program-related earned income represented uh, about 40% of our revenue and the gala represented the other 60. And I'm counting in the gala also some very generous individual donors. We've over the years cultivated relationships with some philanthropists who are in a position to give what I call significant amounts of money. 
the Steve Madden Foundation um, made a commitment to donate 50000 a year for three years to us. And at, at the time that Steve made that commitment, I'm certain he had no idea how powerful and important each of those $50,000 chunks of money would be to our survival and, and, and capacity to continue doing what we do and offering the services. And in addition to that, there have been, we're calling them our baby boomer supporters um, who have been with us for year after year after year. And one of the challenges we face now is that we really need to broaden our database of donors and appeal to Gen Z and millennials. Because we're on this end of things, you know, we're 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 good. Those people are, thank God, very very um, loyal and still believing in the power of the work that we do. But we don't really have a way to reach some of the younger generation. We need to build that part of what we do. Well, you just gave me a perfect segue for our next guest, Doug Wingo. Doug is the principal and founder of Wingo Inc., an outsourced fundraising firm. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. Doug, please tell us a little bit about you and Wingo Inc. Sure, sure, sure. We are a 25-year-old fundraising and donor communication consulting firm, a hands-on group of experts, including three designers. And we focus primarily on individual giving programs, special events, digital fundraising, events that are both virtual and in-person, capital campaigns, and coaching. Uh, we're generalists in the consulting world, and um, our clients tend to be in the social justice space, you know, kind of broadly defined. Uh, they typically have a very small development team. Some of our clients have no development person. Many of them have boards who are very resistant to fundraising, and you know, many of them have the majority of their income from foundation or government and very little individual giving program, even for groups that have been around for decades. So uh, I say that our, our work and our, inter our intervention, it's really the same for the $90 million nonprofit with, you know, $89 million of their funding from uh, government as the $250,000 startup organization. Same, it's the same work. And so, Doug, what's your reaction to Penny's story and what happened throughout the pandemic? And help us. We would really appreciate your thoughts with what you're seeing with your own clients. Yeah, we too, as a firm, produced, you know, many in-person virtual events last, was it even last spring? The spring before last, I believe now. We too had to uh, pivot to producing virtual events, which we knew nothing about. And in the past, uh, you know, a little over a year, We've produced three dozen virtual fundraising galas. And wow. what we found, yeah, it was <laughs> many, many galas. We found that most all clients met or exceeded uh, their budgets, which were uh, very similar to their in-person fundraising goals. And many of them exceeded their what they had done in person. The whole idea of going virtual was like learning to speak Chinese overnight. It was just really a brand new experience for us. And we hired a producer to help us who was also a yoga teacher and um, a philanthropist at heart. So she kept her fees down and we, we created something magical. It really was quite special. We heard from quite a number of our stakeholders that unlike some of the other virtual galas they had attended, this was it was magical. It was really exciting. It was fun. It was people felt engaged. Um, and we 
surpassed our goal for funding to raise, but fell way short of what our goal has been in the past when we've been able to go um, on ground. Can you talk a little bit about your donor pool, Penny? How many individuals are giving over a year? And then how are you taking these small donations and turning them into the $50,000 donations? How has this worked for you in the past? <laughs> you know, it's interesting you asked that question. I, I feel like it's it's so funny. It's, everything feels like pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. But pre-pandemic, Jerry and I, who were primarily doing the development work, were out and about in the community, meeting, greeting, talking, having coffee, practicing yoga, standing on our heads, literally doing all kinds of events and, and had a kind of public-facing face for Kulas. We used my birthday as an excuse for a summer fundraiser. And we had a musical event called the Karma Monkeys event. And, you know, we just kind of had several opportunities throughout the course of the year to reach and touch and cultivate this existing donor base. It's been a lot more challenging with these younger, smaller donors because we ha- we've developed a, an innovative advisory board that is made up of young people who are passionate about the work we do. They tend to want to give money via Venmo or some other platform that doesn't allow for us to capture emails and and cell numbers and things of that sort. So the follow-up and the conversion of that $10 donor to a $20, $50, $100 donor has been a lot slower than I would have hoped. But we are finally, I think, all on the same page around the importance of being able to follow up um, and cultivate from that perspective as well. Doug, I'm just curious as to your thoughts. Do you see a difference in the stability of organizations that have multiple income streams versus just one or two that you mentioned? Yes. Individuals, they're the way to go. They really should be the foundation. You know, individuals you can reach out to and say, hey, can, can you give me another $10,000? Whereas if you're trying to get a foundation or a government funder to do that, they maybe love you and be very amenable, but we can do it in six months. Um, so, And I know I see it in my own work. I have multiple clients that are all government funded or mostly foundation funded. And if you lose one of those contracts, game over. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a challenge. People have a lot of barriers to asking folks for money. It's not something any, any of us were you know, born to do. We hate to ask for a raise. We hate to ask for money. We hate to ask for the things we need, but it really is critical. And, and not only getting over the barrier, but it allows our donors, people like us, people like our listeners who want to help and want to do something and have the means. You know, The donor class in the past year did not lose money. You know, the donor class has made more money and, and also become more engaged. You know, we're at a moment in history where people want to want to help and they often don't know how, you know, or they're just not asked. So Penny, with a strong individual donor pool, how does Penny, an organization that's under a million dollars, how does she take it to the next level? Yeah. Penny, as you know, the growth in your program it's going to come through major gifts. You know, it sounds like you have all the tools. You've got the, you know, monthly giving program, peer-to-peer, all the tools that most of our CRMs give us. You've got that junior board, which every nonprofit, you know, wants to have, but possibly doesn't want to spend the time and effort to do it. Um, I'm, you know, I assume you have lovely communications. You're reaching out to people, not just with your hands out, but really the growth and um, fundraising 
comes through major gifts. And that, you know, is just the challenge of sitting down once a year and screening and rating your donor list. Who are those folks who are giving a thousand who could give 10,000? Who's giving 10 who could give 25? Creating those tools. You know, what are our sponsorship opportunities? Are there ways that donors can target their gift of $5,000 or more? Do you have, this is the, you know, the, the uh, building block of all these programs. Who are those 25 donors that we need to sit down with once a year to cultivate, solicit, or steward their gift in person, you know, or on Zoom, but mostly in person? Because those in-person meetings, when the donor says, yes, they'll meet with you, they're highly likely to give again. They're high like, highly likely to increase their gift. So segmentation in, in all things fundraising is key. You know, who's getting direct mail? Who's getting what uh, email? But, you know, most importantly, who are the folks that need the most attention, um, that needs the more personal attention and the human touch? And who, you know, yes, we're building relationships with donors at all levels, but we need to be very mindful of building relationships with those folks who can send us that $10,000 every year, that $50,000 every year. Those are critical. And then, of course, the, um, the, the infrastructure. Who is meeting with those donors? It can't just be the executive director. That is not her job alone to you know, see these 25 people, those two donors every month. It requires board members. Board members, let's say we have 20 people on the board. If there are five board members that we can engage in face-to-face -face solicitation, meaning they will sit down with one to three donors over the course of one year, that is a home run. And that will greatly grow our fundraising and also increase the, obviously increase the capacity of our board. Doug, I'm just curious, what are some mistakes that you've seen organizations make when it comes to diversification? I think, as I mentioned before, I will frequently see organizations that are exclusively government funded or exclusively foundation funded. And then it's very hard to build something from scratch. So I guess, what do organizations do in that type of situation where there's literally no fundraising platform at all? Let's start there. Two things. One is you have to figure out what is our audience. You know, if you're a cause or an issue that is not going to appeal to a corporate donor, meaning you have no corporate volunteer engagement strategies, or maybe you're just too left or too right, whatever it is, don't focus on corporate philanthropy, you know, except around your events. So don't make those mistakes. Secondly, it really starts with you have to start with who you know, you know, and that typically starts with the board. Are there some existing donors, folks you can reach out to? Are there staff people? You know, there are typically folks who work on our staffs who are either people of wealth or because they live in New York City, they know wealthy people. So, you know, we want to definitely, you know, we have to grow our prospect list, you know, beyond our current donors. How do we do that through other human beings, possibly through competitor or peer organization research, you know, gathering the annual reports of those 20 to 30 organizations that have a similar donor profile that you do and noticing, oh, this one woman is giving to 10 of our 20 peer organizations, but not to us. Let's see if we can find some connectivity to her. And if we can't, let's cold call her. You know, uh, this is incredibly helpful for foundation giving too, but especially for individual giving. And then typically, you know, you want to begin reaching out to people, you know, obviously with our digital campaigns, we've, we've um, invested some money, we have some new donors, we've come up with this, the welcome strategy, you know, we're going to send those two or three emails before we ask them for a gift. 
Same thing with, with major individual donors. But typically those people we invite to in-person donor cultivation events, you know, at a home or a place which is off or someone gonna, who's going to be there is often the draw more than the cause is the draw. But, you know, like churches and synagogues and mosques, we need to get people in the room to give them religion. So, you know, asking board members to bring, you know, one or two folks who they know could give $500 or more, $1,000 or more, whatever it is, to this two-hour evening cocktail party and, um, you know, let uh, our messaging and human interaction kind of do the trick. You're inviting a lot of folks and then you're seeing who self-selects, who says yes, they can come or who emails you and said, I can't come, but I'm really interested and, and allowing folks to do that, to come in for free. You know, I love what you said, Doug, about about uh, relying and cultivating relationships and networking with the board. We, we need to rethink what's going on with our board and add some engaged members to the board. Every time we, 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 we create new board members or we invite new board members to join us, we get one or two people that are really excited and, and engaged and want to be part of a working board. And then that is difficult to sustain. That energy seems to be difficult to sustain on the part of the board member and on the part of Jerry and I to keep them engaged. I have two suggestions for you. I'm listening. <laughs> One is, you know, many people want to grow their board. You know, maybe they have a thousand dollar give or get or whatever. Um, everybody wants that two to two hundred and fifty thousand dollar give or get board. But, you know, as we look at life at fundraising through a more equitable lens, what we're recommending to many clients is they shy away from the specific dollar amount give or get and then adopt something that folks are calling the meaningful give or get. You know, what is a meaningful gift for you? For one person, it might be $100. For another person, it's $1,000. But that way you can get, you know, have a few more seats on the board that are really just for wealthy people who will give and possibly not even show up for the board meetings. Who cares? Um, but they'll make that $100,000 give or get. That's one, that would be one technique I would offer. The other is because you said earlier that many of your donors are, the, you know, folks of my age, the baby boomers. And that is, you know, obviously we're living in the time of the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. And many of these good baby boomer don donors, you know, are uh, going to meet their maker or make, make, make crests. So we're telling everybody they got to start a basic planned giving program, you know, in terms of who are the prospects on your list, not just the old people, but anyone on your list who has made a gift of any size for five years in a row are amazing planned gift prospects. And then, of course, if you can tell single people or, or couples who have no children. You know, people with uh, not a lot of heirs can tend to be amazing plan gift donors. So that's just something we need to stop being afraid of saying out loud or thinking that um, it's just the <laughs> 90 year olds who are the plan gift donors. You know, it's the 40 and the 50 year olds, you know, that kind of thing. People who have gotten to a point in their life uh, where they're thinking about meaning and legacy and they have the, the money's going to go somewhere. So better, better to you. And the, and the, the thing we always tell clients is, don't not be in communication with those people. Don't send them a little thank you note and that be it. They are your major donors, you know, have a very personal and intense relationship with these people. So they won't take you out of the will when they fall in love with another charity. That's part of I it, love you know? that advice. Thank you, Doug. That is awesome. I love that, Doug. That's awesome. 
So just some final thoughts to wrap up. Penny, I'm going to start with you. Give us three lessons learned from the pandemic. Be ready to pivot on a dime. (laughs) Reach out for help with your professional team. I mean, Amy, you were invaluable to our being able to negotiate applying for the PPP loans and and then, uh, you know, justifying how the money was spent and figuring out what we needed to do in order to survive and then thrive again. And not be afraid. I think, Doug, you made a good point. Not be afraid to ask and let people know that they have an opportunity to make a difference and that that, that in fact, is a privilege even though at the very beginning of the pandemic, we felt like, oh my gosh, you know, Kula is not a a life-saving kind of organization. There's so much need out there. But when things kind of started to look like there, there was some light at the end of the tunnel and we started hearing more about the mental health challenges that people are faced with, we recognized that our mission, our goal, our, our values are as important now as they ever were. And we have a job to serve the needs of the people who are out there. That's great. Thanks, Penny. Doug? Three things I would tell people to do. First is your elevator pitch. It must come out of the mouths of both your staff and your board easily and flawlessly. So do the work to get a communal elevator pitch. Secondly, determine who the top 25 major donor prospects are and put them on a tracker and look at that tracker every week and define next steps and implement next steps every week and engage the the board or the development committee in doing this as well. And then train your board and staff to be face-to-face solicitors, realizing that the majority of them are not going to do that, but the ones that are, are your unpaid major gifts officers. Don't not do that. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much to both Penny and Doug. This has been a great conversation. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Balance. I'm your host, Amy Carson. You can learn more about our company, Brand K Partners, and what we do at brandkpartners.com. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, and this episode was produced by David Hoffman and Alex Brower. If you like the show, never miss an episode by subscribing on all your favorite podcast apps. And please leave a rating and a review. See you next week.